I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Adopted as a baby by a well-connected, wealthy family, this girl seemed to have it all. But the bright future of this young woman was eventually snuffed out after a series of family betrayals. This is episode 51, the Asunta Young Bang Bastera story. Megan. Hey, Amy. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm doing okay today. Great. Before we get started, I want to thank Emma and Natalie Bellino for their help with today's episode. Thanks, ladies. Thank you. And before we get started today, let's thank some of our supporters. Wait till you see our first one as I'm so excited. A big thank you to Christine Ferriolo from FDU. Thank you, Chris. So awesome to have your support. She's always been a huge fan. Remember, she used to always talk to us about direct appeal. I loved so it. So awesome. Thank loved you it. so much. We miss you at FDU. We miss you. We can't wait to see you at our AMA. Yes. And we have Kelly, whose friend Skylar bought her Patreon for her birthday. How sweet is that? That's so awesome. Thank you both. What a great gift. We have Jessica Sullivan and Kimberly. We also have Erica with a K. Thank you, Erica. We have Lexi Holland, Annie from Atlanta, Justin Ware, and Alyssa. Thank you so much. Oh, I love to see it. We've got Justin in the bunch too. I love it. And lastly, we have Nicola from South Africa. Remember, we were talking about where do we want to go and we both said South Africa. So I hope you have a guest room. On our list. (laughs) We're coming down. Seriously, thank you to everyone. And it's with support from listeners like you that we are able to keep up the quality content of the show. So thank you so much. I want to start today by talking about Asunta's parents. Rosario Porto was born in 1969 in northwestern Spain, and she came from a very prominent family. Some people reportedly even call them aristocracy. Rosario's father was a very well-regarded lawyer. In fact, he was the honorary consul of France. Wow. Yeah, he was an official representative of the government really just assisting and protecting citizens from his home country. Got it. Her mother was also highly regarded as she was a university lecturer of art history. By all accounts, Rosario had a normal upbringing, although I would say she was quite privileged, but there was no reports of any abuse or anything. 
She had studied abroad in Oxford as a teenager and then traveled to France, where she was an exchange student at just 22 years old. She had only lasted a few months, though, when she was in France because allegedly she had developed acute anxiety and depression that was getting in the way of her studies. However, she did begin working in her father's law practice after she graduated, and she, in fact, became a practicing attorney. In 1997, she was appointed consul of France, inheriting the role from her father. A few years prior, she met freelance journalist Alfonso Bastera, who was from northern Spain. The two hit it off, and they got married in 1996. And the two lived together in an apartment that had occupied the whole fourth floor of an apartment building in what people called Santiago's, quote, VIP zone. It was a very wealthy area. Got it. The couple decided that they wanted to expand their family and adopt a child. It is unclear if they had tried to conceive on their own or if adoption was always their plan. But either way, the couple decided that they wanted to adopt a baby girl from China. And this was not a very common thing in Spain at the time. And I want to stop for a minute to talk about the state of international adoption of Chinese children. So in 1979 in China, the one-child policy came into effect as a way to slow population growth. Oh, that's right. I remember that. And there were many exceptions, and some families were able to have more than one child. But the one-child policy brought many Chinese families immense pain, essentially forcing parents to make difficult decisions and give up children, especially baby girls. Female children had always been considered less valuable than males because they could not really glorify the family name the way that boys could. Also, they could not continue the family line. And this was very important in the culture. I mean, I understand that, but you need the female to continue the line, too. Let's not forget that can't be done on their own. Also, at the time in the Chinese culture, the notion that a son would support his parents in old age, where a daughter was not able to do that because she would get married out of the family. This issue of preferring a son to her daughter, as you could imagine, led to a huge surge in abandoned female babies. Anyway, in 2013, this one-child policy was relaxed and it was finally abolished in 2015. And there was, as a result, a decrease then in the international adoptions of baby girls from China. However, at the height of this international adoption craze in China, Rosario and Alfonso in 2001, who were now in their mid-30s, flew to China to adopt their baby girl. They had spent two weeks in China making their final payments, and they brought home their nine-month-old baby girl to Santiago. They named the baby Asunta Feng Yang Bestero Porto. That is quite a name. Yeah, so I think it's nice. They wanted to honor her heritage by keeping the Feng Yang, and I guess they wanted her to have the double last name. So yes, it becomes quite the long name. What do we know about Asunta? Well, we really don't know much, Megan. What we do know is that she was born in September of 2000, and she was described as a very underweight, undersized infant. And at just a few months old, she ended up in an orphanage in China's Hunan province after the loss of her grandparents, who had been her only and primary caregivers. It's really all we know about her background. I couldn't find anything on her birth parents or her birth parents' situation. This adoption brought the couple lots of attention from their community. Essentially, they were praised for rescuing this child who was in need. Rosario even appeared on local television to share her experience about adoption. Remember, she was a very well-known lawyer because she was the consul. I don't know if this is relevant, but has there been any insinuation that they did it for that reason, to to garner pray, even more praise? Well, that's for us to break down at the end. Okay. I, th- I think it's a Fair very, enough. it's an interesting hypothesis. I definitely thought of that too. As the years went by, Asunta excelled in school. She was extremely gifted. In fact, by the time she was in middle school, she was so smart or she was deemed so smart that she actually skipped a year in school. Now, this little girl took German in school and her parents had her in private lessons for English, French, and Chinese. 
And this is on top of the fact that she already spoke Spanish and another language called Galatian, which was similar to Portuguese that is spoken in the northwest corner of Spain. That's a lot of languages. That's pretty impressive. In addition to that, she also took private lessons in ballet, violin, and piano. Doesn't sound like a lot of time to sleep, but okay. No, and there was an account from her piano teacher where she explained what Asunta Saturdays were like. She says she got up at 7 a.m., did Chinese from 8 until 10, then came to ballet from 10.15 to 12.30, then did French until lunchtime. And then there was violin and piano. All on Saturdays. All on Saturdays. So you could imagine what this child's life was like. I was going to say, I mean, I'm all for activities, but that just sounds too much. It, It does. She was described as shy around strangers, but very playful at home. She often played practical jokes on her parents and would like to dance around the house in her ballet costumes. The family together was pretty active. They would often attend concerts and plays. They were quite cultured. Her mother became involved in a liberal cultural club that would arrange talks and debates and concerts, so they were always doing something. Mm -hmm. By the time Asunta turned 12 in September of 2012, some say she started to get fed up with the overwhelming amount of activities that she was doing. Can't blame her. It's like that age, too, where you want to start socializing and being with your peers a little bit. Yeah, it's not clear that she did much socializing. It seems clear that she probably did not. Yeah. According to an acquaintance, one day, Asunta's mother was going through a list of after-school activities, and Asunta said in front of this acquaintance, that's one thing I'm doing only because you like it. So there were some people that said that she was being pushed into doing these activities. The girl was very close with the family's cleaner and nanny, and also with her godmother. And these two women would describe her mostly as happy and enjoying what she did. They did say sometimes she was reserved and she would also share some of her concerns with the women, but there were no red flags. And overall, those close to the family said that they seemed like an idyllic family. Okay, but that's the outside looking in. Exactly. So when do things start changing? Well, in 2019, things started to take a turn. According to The Guardian, first, Rosario spent two nights in a private psychiatric hospital saying that she felt suicidal, apathetic, and guilty. A psychiatrist wrote in her notes that she, Rosario, gets very irritable with her daughter, who is a bother. Okay, did something happen? Or All right, we don't it's know It's unclear. Yet. It's okay. unclear. After just two days, she discharged herself from the hospital and only went back for one of the regular checkups that were scheduled. Two years later, in 2001, Rosario had recovered and began to think about sending her daughter away to a school in England for a year to help her with English and to make sure she lived up to her, quote, natural brilliance. However, this would never come to fruition. In early 2013, Alfonso discovered that Rosario was having an affair with a local successful businessman. Rosario had actually admitted to a friend that she was tired of her underachieving house husband. Ooh. Yeah. Alfonso then moved away and he stayed with relatives for some time, but then just three weeks later, he moved to an apartment just around the corner from Rosario's home. His only aim, he said, was to just see his daughter grow up happy. So she would split her time between the two homes, often walking the short distance between them. Okay. A source says that Rosario told Asunta about the divorce, but assured her that she and Alfonso would always still love her. And apparently Asunta's main concern was who would cook now that her father, the chef and the housekeeper, would be gone. Ouch. (laughs) Yeah. So clearly it seems, although the father did have a job, it did seem that he was more of like the stay home role and Rosario was out, I guess, working a more demanding job. Sounds fine to me. Yeah, me too. During this time, Alfonso would constantly email Rosario, begging her to get back with him. 
And he would also remind her of all the household tasks that she would now be responsible for. Really, what he was trying to do is to get her to take him back by provoking anxiety of all these household tasks that she would now be responsible for that he used to do. In 2011 and 2012, Rosario's mother and father both died within just the span of a few months of each other. Some say that the stress of these events is where Rosario's mental health really began to take a huge decline. I could see that. Yep. In June of 2013, she had a nervous breakdown that provoked acute physical symptoms, including dizziness, and the seizing up of one side of her face. Is that, oh, wow, that's interesting. I would have thought that was more associated with like Bell's palsy, but... That could be the case, but we just can't be sure. We don't have the documentation. Okay. So during this event, she was rushed to the hospital, and despite their disagreements, Alfonso stayed right by her side, and when it was time for her to go home, he went to help take care of her. So the family started spending more time together like they used to, and I think Alfonso was feeling optimistic and thinking he might move back in with them. In September of 2013, now at 12 years old, Asunta started back at school after she had a summer break where she spent most of the time with her nanny and godmother in her home village, the two women I mentioned earlier. Oh, okay. And her parents stayed in a nearby apartment in Santiago and only spent a week or so with Asunta during that summer. On the evening of September 21st, 2013, Rosario says that she returned home around 9.30 p.m. and that's when she noticed her daughter was missing. At this point, she called many relatives, including her husband, Alfonso, who was still residing in his own apartment nearby. Around 10 p.m., Rosario Porto and Alfonso Bestera went to the Santiago police station to report their daughter, Asunta, missing. Rosario initially told police that she had left Asunta at their house in Santiago doing homework while she went to the family's country home, which was about 20 minutes away. One strange thing, Megan, right before they left the police station, Alfonso reminded Rosario, tell the police about that strange incident that happened earlier in the summer. So this is the story she supposedly tells the police. She tells them that around 2 a.m. on a July night, she was woken up by Asunta who was screaming. So she ran to her room and she saw a man dressed in black, wearing gloves, bending over the child. She says the man ran out, pushing past her, causing a big bruise on her cheek. She says they notified the police about the incident, but had decided not to make a formal report because she said that break-ins were rarely solved and there was nothing need, there was nothing missing from the home, so there was really no need. I don't buy that. It was just such a random... You know, and I think we'll probably get back to this when we talk about, you know, theories in the case. Okay. I just don't believe that. I don't believe that if there was a stranger in my child's room standing over them, I wouldn't be bothered to file a report because yep. that's that's way more, you know, of a danger, I would say, than just someone yep. trying to burglar your home. Well, and she also said that they had left keys in like an outside lockbox of the apartment. And she was confused as to how this strange man knew about the box that, you know, contained these keys. It's a very strange story. Okay. In the early morning hours of September 22nd, 2013, and Megan, this is just a few hours after Rosario and Alfonso showed up at the police station, a local man, Alfredo Balsa, and a friend were driving down a dirt road. And while they were driving, they spotted a dark figure that he says looked like a scarecrow. Okay. He then reverses the car and pointed at headlights in the direction to try to get a better idea of what they were looking at. Well, it turns out there was a human body um, that was stretched out on a gently sloping bank just two meters from the road. The two men got out of the car and they say they found a girl who was dressed in dirt-covered gray sweatpants with one arm half inside her top and a white t-shirt that was pulled over her stomach. The girl's left arm was curled up to her shoulder. There was a large wet stain around her and there was a small amount of blood-tinged mucus under her nose. The two men say they checked for a pulse, but unfortunately they could not find one. 
Sadly, this was the body of... Asunta. Yes, unfortunately, just over a half a mile from the family's country home and just a few weeks shy of her 13th birthday. At 4.45 a.m., Asunta's parents were told that her body was recovered. There was something else strange that happened at the police station that I failed to mention. So just hours before, you know, before they got this news that their daughter's body was found, Rosario and a detective were smoking a cigarette together. And Rosario said that she, Asunta, must be dead. I just hope she didn't get raped. That's, yeah, it's a little strange. I mean, again, we don't judge too much by odd things people say because yeah. you never know the way the of brain's course. working, yeah. you know, shock or whatnot. But it's a little odd. It seems a little off, right? The next few days were filled with interrogations, police searches, and funeral planning. Now let's move on to the investigation, which did not take very long. Using CCTV footage from the area, police were very quickly able to piece together a timeline. On September 21st, 2013, again, this is the last day that Asunta was confirmed to be alive, she was seen on a bank surveillance camera around 2 p.m. that day, and she was seen in the passenger seat of her mother's car. She was again seen on camera just after 5 p.m., leaving her father's home and headed to her mother's home. Footage also showed Rosario driving her green Mercedes on the road that led towards their country house, the road where the body was eventually found. So that evening, she was seen on that road. Now, there was no physical evidence that was linking her to the murder, but Rosario was arrested. And I read she was actually arrested at the funeral. At the funeral? At the funeral. Okay. You know, I don't know how you feel about that. I don't know. No matter how guilty someone is, I think we could wait because it is traumatizing to other loved ones at the funeral. I think so. I think it ruins it for everyone else who's there to celebrate their loved ones. So I would, I would don't agree with that. Yeah, I don't agree with that as well. People who knew her were shocked. Many reported that they had never even seen... Rosario mistreat her daughter in any way. Now, there were just so many inconsistencies in her story from the beginning, so I want to go back and highlight some of them. Initially, Rosario had told police that she left the city of Santiago around 9 p.m. and headed to their country home, where she believed Asunta to be. However, footage showed her in the area around 6 p.m., so because of that, she changed her story. Now, the reason she changes her story is because the time frame doesn't make sense because the CCTV footage showed them driving when Asunta should have been home or would have been home if you had listened to Rosario's story. I'm confused. Didn't she say that Asunta was home doing homework and she, Rosario, was the one who went to the country house? It changes. So at some point she says that Asunta was at the country house and she was in Santiago. But then once the police see this footage showing that she couldn't have been in in Santiago at that time, she admitted that it was, you know, her daughter in the car with her and she blamed the pills for making her weary. In other words, saying, oh, I must have messed up. We must have been at the country home, not in Santiago. Okay. So she's changing her story. Right. I was just having trouble following it, but I might have, I might have actually misunderstood the first um, way back. I don't know. I don't think you did, actually. All right. It, it is a, it's a little bit confusing because her story changes. Okay, keep going. I'll try to, I'll take notes. <laughs> now she tells police that Asunta felt ill while they were driving. So this caused her to stop at their house in Santiago and the girl stayed back while she ran errands. However, police looked at over 30 cameras in the area where she said she drove, and there was absolutely no sign of her or her car. So now we're going back to Santiago. Even more confusing, right? Okay. A lot of discrepancies, Rosario. Not <laughs> yes. looking good. The police and Rosario went to the country house after the body was found. Her, she, went, she went with the police there, and she was told not to touch anything and to stay with the police. But as soon as they got there, she asked to use the bathroom, went upstairs, and of course the police follow her because they say, don't go anywhere. And they find her rushing towards a wastebasket where they found some twine. 
and this twine happens to be similar to the twine that was found near Asunta's body. Oh, boy. Yeah, the investigators thought that this was probably the twine that they used to tie Asunta's limbs together. Later, forensic scientists did look at this, of course, and they were unable to say if the twine came from the same roll. But Megan, to the naked eye, it looks identical. Okay. You could see pictures online of that. Okay. So not long after she was arrested, the police arrest her husband, Alfonso Becerra, as an accomplice to the murder. Now, they didn't really have anything on him. However, they said there's no way that Rosario could have done this herself. I don't know if I believe that, but let me tell you why they think this. All right. She was a very small woman, and they say that she could not have carried, you know, dead weight. Ah, this this is a hard one. How, but Asunta was 12 years old. She's probably small, too. Yes, but other than that, there are some other reasons to look at him, but there's no physical evidence to implement Bastera at all. He claims he was alone in his apartment cooking or reading a book with his phone off when the murder happened. But conveniently, his phone and his wife's phone were off at similar times of question. And I was going to say, why is his phone off? That's a red flag. And later they would find questionable images on his computer. So they started to find character defects, which we don't want to judge people based on character defects. But, you know, some of the images were quite disturbing. Fair enough. I mean, yeah. So, you know, both of them are claiming like their phone's batteries had run out. So basically their movements could not be tracked from data that was picked up by nearby cell phone towers conveniently right around the time where Asunta was probably murdered. Now, there are some other reasons to suspect the couple. On July 5th, 2013, Asunta sent a WhatsApp message to her friend saying, quote, I'm very nervous. They tried to kill me. Oh. And then she later wrote that her parents kept giving her, quote, white powder. Oh, my gosh. Yes. This also matched stories that were told by her teachers. It was found out that she had confessed to her music teacher that, quote, I don't know what they are giving me. No one tells me the truth. Now, on this same day that she sent this message to her friend, her father had purchased 50 doses of Orphidel. What is Orphidel? It's a benzo that's used to treat anxiety disorders. Okay. And now the next few days, her music and ballet teachers noticed that she was drowsy and dizzy and also disoriented. And Megan, get this, on the last Wednesday before she died, she missed school, which was very unusual for her. And her father had excused her by saying that she had reacted badly to some medicine she was taking. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. So forensic scientists tested Asunta's blood and urine, and this revealed highly toxic levels of lorazepam. And now this is the main active ingredient in the Orphidel pills that Rosario had used for a long time to calm her anxiety attacks. And the amount that they found in her body was equivalent to that of more than 20 pills. So was that the cause of death? Overdose? So the autopsy report confirmed that she had been consistently drugged with benzos over a long period of time. So I'm not sure that they were able to say that was the cause of death. Is the cause of death ends up being something else, but they are able to say that she was highly drugged at the time of her death. Okay. Forensic scientists tested a strand of her hair and discovered the presence of this drug along the first three centimeters of her hair. So do you know what this indicates? That she had been using it for some time. <laughs> exactly. So they say hair grows at about a centimeter a month. So they concluded that she had been ingesting these smaller doses for close to three months. Mm -hmm. And there's no reason to believe this girl was taking this herself. Right. I mean, you would know that if she was prescribed it or seeing a doctor. And the forensic scientist was also able to conclude that she had absorbed a large quantity on the night she died. So she was absorbing small quantities over the course of time. But then that night, there was a larger dose given. Now, in addition to this, she had several lesions and bruises on her body. So a forensic technician who performed the autopsy said that there was pressure applied to the girl's face, which would suggest that there was some opposition on a census part. So even if she was under the influence of benzos, it does seem that she was able to fight back. So this gives them some idea that she was likely suffocated by her parents. She was drugged and then smothered. That was the investigator's conclusion. Got it. 
The investigator's theory was that the couple had grown tired of the child that they, quote, bought and didn't want to deal with her adolescent self. So they decided, you know, this was very premeditated. They planned to slowly drug her and then convince people that she had been abducted and killed. So they say, you know, Rosario Rosario Porto was the driving force of this murder. And they reasoned that she had been overwhelmed by the recent death of her parents. And this is really what made her become unhinged. She was seeing a psychologist in the weeks leading up to the murder. And she did report feeling overwhelmed by Asunta. And she has a history of mental illness and mental instability. Yes, a documented history for sure. Mm -hmm. And the investigators started to even look into why they even adopted Asunta in the first place, because it came out that Rosario never wanted kids. And investigators thought maybe she had felt pressure from her parents and maybe she decided to adopt because it was a way for her to kind of distance herself from the child. Maybe she felt pressure from her husband. Could have been that too. The investigators also said that they saw the couple as arrogant and selfish. And one of the investigators made a statement saying, quote, I think they wanted to project the stereotype of a happy family. If she wants something, she thinks she can just buy it. And if she doesn't want it, she gets rid of it. He helps her to satisfy her whims. When she is dependent, he becomes violent. The investigation went pretty slow for the next two years. There were many television shows made about the case, and many details of the investigation was leaked, although there was a gag order um, enforced by a judge. There was tons of media attention. This turned out to be a huge story in China, too. The trial didn't start for about two years after the arrest, and when October 2015 is when the trial began in in the northwestern region of Galicia. And the two were both in jail during, you know, awaiting trial. Oh, yeah, I would have expected so. So overall, the case was purely circumstantial, and the couple maintained their innocence throughout the whole time. Rosario actually spent most of her time in a daze. She was heavily medicated, whereas Alfonso was a bit more agitated and seemed angry. Other than the music and ballet teachers who had seen Asunta dazed or upset, all of the other witnesses described them as model parents. The prosecution downgraded charges against Alfonso and labeled him as an accomplice to his ex-wife's crime instead of um, one of the masterminds. So at first, they were charging them both as two masterminds, and then they were looking at the dynamics of the relationship. They were also listening to a lot of their conversations. When they were in jail, they were in cells next to each other being recorded. And something about their interactions together really gave the police this idea that she had this control over him. I wonder if they were hoping that he would talk, too. I think they were. Did not happen, though. Rosario was unable to explain her initial lies about her movements on the day of Asunta's death, really just saying she was confused because she was taking medication. She did take the stand, and she was pretty hysterical throughout the trial. But, Megan, I was not able to access the trial or the trial transcript, so I cannot say With my own eyes, what she was like, it was just from reading other accounts. I'm surprised they put her on the stand. I mean, the instability, the lies, like I would think her credibility. Maybe they were hoping she'd come off as sympathetic, someone who was crying and emotional and a mother, but I I don't know. And like I said, she's very tiny. Like maybe they just thought that, um, you know, she would seem like, you know, almost the, you know, the victim, like you said, crying, the small, you know, small presence in the courtroom. During the trial, it was revealed that Alfonso had obtained at least 175 pills over 10 weeks, and many of these illegally with his wife's prescription, others without a prescription, and then even more with a prescription that he obtained after lying to his own doctor. So, you know, this is not looking very good. This is strong circumstantial right there. Very strong. And so the jury was told that Asunta was forced to swallow at least 27 ground-up pills, and this is nine times more powerful than a strong adult dose. So they are saying on the day she died, this is what led to her death. 
they probably thought that they were giving her enough to actually kill her. And then they probably realized when it wasn't going to yeah. happen that they had to finish yeah. what they started. I was wondering that if they were drugging her to kill her or drugging her to incapacitate her enough so that she didn't fight back. I don't know. Neither parent could explain how or why the daughter had these pills. And they both claimed that they had only given her pills to treat hay fever on the days where she appeared dizzy. So those days when people testify that, you know, she seemed dizzy. Another very strong piece of testimony came from a 15-year-old acquaintance of Asunta who claimed to have seen her in the street with her father on the day of the crime. And this is when he was supposed to be home. Remember, he said he was home reading and cooking. However, this witness says she is sure that she saw him at this time. So now we have a hole in his alibi as well. Do we also have those uh, emails that Asunta said they're trying to kill me? Did they come into play at the trial? They did. Okay. And it was only, I think it was only those two messages on that app. There wasn't a lot more, but those are still pretty strong. They're pretty strong. Yeah. During the trial, almost 60 experts were called to testify. And we're talking almost 100 people taking the stand between experts and character witnesses. So this was one of the most closely followed criminal trials in Spain in the recent years. A nine-member jury unanimously found the pair guilty of killing their daughter. The judge gave Rosario and Alfonso 18-year sentences. The Guardian said, as the crime was committed right before a new law introduced life sentences for child murderers, both had appealed to have their convictions overturned right away. A court-appointed psychologist who interviewed Rosario after the crime deemed her narcissistic and depressive, but capable of distinguishing between right and wrong. And the reports claim that she was friendly, relaxed, emotionally expressive, cooperative, and adaptable. She had told the psychologist that she was a passionate woman and she described her husband as patient, easygoing, understanding, a strong character, and a sense of humor. Now, Alfonso refused to be interviewed by a psychologist. He said he didn't want anyone profiling him. Okay, so they were sent to prison and that's that. Is that really that though, No, it's not. Of course it's not. In November of last year, prison workers were taking attendance and they noticed that Rosario was missing. So they went to check on her in her cell and they found that she had used a fabric belt that she tied to a window and she hung herself. They immediately called the medics, but she was found unresponsive and Rosario Porto died from suicide. Now, she had already served seven years in three different penitentiaries because she had made several other attempts to take her own life. On November 12th in 2018, she wrapped a cord around her neck and then she alerted her cellmate about her plan. So that sent prison staff running to stop her. So that almost seemed like she wasn't planning on doing it. She was trying to get attention. But before that, she also tried to injure herself in February of 2017 when she overdosed on a prescription drug. So she was placed in an anti-suicide protocol program. I'm assuming that's got to be similar to our suicide watch. All right, that's what I was going to say. So at all three prisons where she was serving time, she was on this suicide watch. But, you know, so she is now deceased and Alfonso Becerra is still in prison. Now, there's a lot in this case. There was a four-part documentary on this case called What the Truth Hides, the Asunta Case. That's the translation. It premiered on Spanish television in May of 2017. It was actually considered like this landmark documentary in Spain. Very, very popular and it did become available internationally on Netflix in February 2019, but not in English. Ugh, okay. I know. I was trying so hard. I really wanted to see it. Um, so if you are fluent in Spanish, I would definitely check it out. Let us know what we missed. So before we get to our thoughts and did the system get it right, I want to talk about filicide for a minute. Mm-hmm. Megan, do you want to explain what filicide is? I'm assuming you know what it is. The murder of <laughs> one's child. Yeah. So the murder of a child by a parent. And this is regardless of genetic relationship. So filicide cannot be explained using a single construct. 
but there have been several typologies that can help us really understand, assess, and treat people who commit these types of crimes. Megan, the research on adoptive parents who kill their children is very minimal. However, I found it very interesting that there is a plethora of research on situations where adoptive children kill their adoptive parents, something that has been coined adoptive child syndrome. Have you heard about this in your serial killer studies? To be honest, I really haven't. I know there's a couple of serial killers. I know offhand a couple who are adopted, Mm -hmm. but not of whom killed their parents. So listen to these numbers. Some research, and we have a link in the show notes, But research reports that adoptees are 15 times more likely to kill one or both of their parents as compared to biological children. And generally speaking, adoptees are overrepresented in the criminal justice system. Megan, of the 500 estimated serial killers in U.S. history, 16% were adopted as children. That is a big number. Oh, I didn't know that number was that high. Because when you look at the general population, only 2 to 3% of the general population are adopted, but 16% of serial killers. Do you know which serial killers were adopted? I know David Berkowitz yep. was for sure. Mm-hmm. Son of Sam. Yep. Ted Bundy was. Good. I know Bianchi, Kenneth Bianchi. I knew Kenneth he was adopted Bianchi. as well. And then two women. Well, I know Eileen Wuornos wasn't. Mm-hmm. And she would be the one. Maybe Dorothea Puente. Nope. So we have the Black Widow, Brandy Lynn Hungerford. I don't actually know her. And Catherine Gypsy. Manson family murders. Oh, okay. No, I wouldn't have known them. Isn't that interesting? I never, I learned something new in this episode. I never really knew that um, about that link. It's very interesting. No, I didn't either. So Megan, what do you think? Um, Do we want to go into theories or we want to, did the system get it right? What do we think about the sentences? Where do you want to go? The system getting it right. If this was a premeditated murder of a child, 18 years, no, that's not right. I just don't think that was right. However, and I don't, I don't know ex- exactly, but I definitely see a lot of uh, really red flags with Rosario's um, mental health. And it seems like her anxiety was, uh, you know, very much to the extreme. This is all not justification, but mm-hmm. so I don't know if maybe as it pertains to her, if that's like a mitigating factor. I still don't think 18 mm-hmm. years is an appropriate sentence, to be perfectly honest. I think that her husband... Probably, it seems like he would do anything. So he helped her. He was her accomplice, I'm sure. And again, that wouldn't be an appropriate sentence for me. Megan, we know that the U.S. is more punitive than most other countries, but Spain is, they're on the other end of the spectrum, Megan. They didn't even have a life imprisonment sentence until March of 2015. That's right. So actually for Spain, their their sentence is probably appropriate. And I guess it's just come from my perspective that I don't think it's an appropriate sentence for a child, but it probably fits um, well with their legal scheme. I'd want to see a hell of a lot more time for a couple who murdered their child. I was very surprised if that happened in our country. I can't imagine a situation where there wouldn't be a life sentence in premeditated child murder. Premeditated would be life. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, if it was second degree and they couldn't prove the premeditation, but they proved the premeditation. They were ordering pills for a while. So I think they proved the premeditation as well. It sounds to me like they adopted this child to almost complete the portrait um, Mm -hmm. of what people expected from them. And it was like completing their almost this facade that Mm -hmm. they put on. But the reality of child rearing didn't seem to agree with, uh, I don't know about him, but definitely didn't seem to agree with Rosario. With her lifestyle, right? With her lifestyle and with her capabilities. Mm -hmm. It seemed that she had such angst, such frustration. Her anxiety sounds like she was anxious to the extreme. Mm -hmm. Um, Like when you said, like debilitating Mm -hmm. anxiety, frustration, you know, unhealthy coping skills. So I think that probably that was the problem um, for her. And so I would say that she just... 
she couldn't handle it. And so she saw like the only way for her out of this was to eliminate the source of so much of her anxiety, which she probably saw as her daughter, even if that was far from the truth. And this sounds like, you know, the removal of positive stimuli and strain theory, her the death of her parents seems it seems to, be to the trigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'd say probably right, the stress and frustration, which goes along with strain theory, but triggered by someone who had severe mental illness, yes, I would say. Exactly. I think it's safe. still know the difference between right, right and wrong. Um, so still culpable, but definitely mental illness here exacerbating her condition. I don't know about him. I didn't get a lot of background on him. I couldn't find much. So it's hard to know that it seems like everything I was able to get my hands on really focused on Rosario's mental health. Right. And I don't know if that's because she overshadowed him. It's also, I don't think it's fair to put all the blame on her just because she had a mental illness. I don't like that either. No, no, certainly not. Not I mean, from you. I mean, from like the media that everything was and focused certainly, on. certainly, I mean, the jury agreed they were equally culpable yeah. because they got equal sentences. Yep. Um, I wish they equally would have gotten higher sentences. I agree. And I couldn't find anything about, you know, if they were still keeping in touch, the husband and wife, or what his feelings were after her suicide. and Well, hopefully we'll be able to follow up with this um, if he is released. Uh, that is, that's, there's a time frame that we might actually be able to follow this case later on down the line. Yes. So let's do that. Let's keep this on our radar. This was really interesting. I've never heard of it. And mm-hmm. uh, if anyone sees the documentary, let us know. Please. Should we get to some of our patron questions now? Yep, let's do it. The first question we have is from Justin. Justin wants to know... Do the killers like Betty Broderick feel better after they kill? Does it calm them down? I'll take this one. Okay. The answer is yes and no. Um, Betty Broderick saw her ex-husband, Dan, and his wife, Linda, as the source of her strain, anger, frustration. So killing them did actually serve a purpose for her to release some of that anger and frustration. She also felt justified because she felt that she was victimized. So in that way, yes, but it's superficial because the problems that Betty Broderick had weren't just related to the people. They were related to her unwillingness to accept, you know, that Dan had left her or unwillingness to accept her life. So the real problems, the real source of the problems are internal and would likely keep persisting. But in in this immediate way, it just it does serve some kind of, you know, there's some immediate satisfaction that one feels, especially when we talk about strain theory. It's like an outlet for their stress and frustration. Now, also, um, Betty Broderick would be different than, you know, let's say when I talk about serial offenders and serial killers, because that serves um, a, a very different purpose for them as well. And there is a release. And that lasts, I think, a lot longer for them, even if it's not the also the internal source of their um, strife. I hope that answered the question. And I'll wait for Amy to read the next one. All right. The next question we have from Kimberly is she's talking about restorative justice. And she wants to know how many adults do we honestly think that it might work on? Because she's an educator and she thinks that restorative justice could work in elementary because the problems usually start much earlier. And in fact, the research does tell us that restorative justice is effective at reducing recidivism for both adults and juveniles. So when we talk about restorative justice, it's all about how the process is implemented. As long as the offender is treated with dignity and respect, they are more likely to respond to that type of intervention. Okay. Megan, I also want to point out that there are certain offenses that can be challenging for restorative justice. It doesn't work with all offense types. For example, sexual offenses, hate crimes, domestic violence. You know, it's really interesting. Um, you know, our colleague, Alyssa Ackerman, is kind of implementing restorative practices with sex offenders. It, and this is a new area to explore. So it's possible that it could work with even, you know, more. It, you know, restorative justice is somewhat new in the system. So 
I think it, it can definitely work. It hasn't shown great success with every type of offense, but I think we could move forward and progress into that. Thank you, Megan. And thank you all for listening to Women in Crime. Thanks, Amy. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show while gaining access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include The Guardian, The Madrid Metropolitan, The Sun, South China Morning Post, Spain's News, Adoption Forensics by David Kirshner, Adoption and Murder by Redondo and Garrido, El País, English Translation. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.